0: week's program has a gastronomic flavor, pairing two leading entrepreneurs in the world of food and wine. Our starter is Casper Rose, co-founder and CEO of the Wellness Food Group, which owns and operates two leading UK brands in the ready-to-eat meal space and is set to pass 50 million pounds in revenue by 2025. Then it's over to Germany to meet Clara haim the founder of Sips Berlin, the first-ever natural wine delivery app that brings you your vino in a tuk-tuk. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You are with The Entrepreneurs here on Monocle 24. Casper Rose spent years in top restaurant kitchens, working 70 plus hour weeks for bad pay and worse management. But after seven years in commercial kitchens, working for the likes of Gordon Ramsay, Casper threw in the tea towel and decided to dedicate himself to his passions for fitness and fresh produce. In 2015, Fresh Fitness Foods was born and soon started scaling. Since then, he's co founded the Wellness Food Group, a business focused on health and personalized nutrition. Casper, welcome to Midori House. Um, You've got a very interesting story. I think it's safe to say you're a bit of an evangelist when it comes to this idea of looking at nutrition in a a fresh way and offering that to a mass market. Tell us a bit about how your story in this space began.
1: I think it's probably a two-part answer. Part one is me becoming a chef in my early years, and that largely was driven out of necessity for a job. And I think that that probably speaks to how most chefs find a job. Personally, I think that's sort of the hard reality of that situation, that most chefs aren't actually passionate about food. They're more looking for a job. Maybe they're foreign to the country. It often requires no qualifications. And in my case, I washed dishes for two years and then was offered the apprenticeship at the restaurant I was at. And then I spent sort of six or seven years in pretty tough Michelin star restaurants. And that led me to come to the UK. I spent a year working for Gordon Ramsay And at that stage, once I'd wrapped up there, I had an opportunity with my flatmate to start making meals for fresh fitness food, and that's when we'd begun to scale that. So in and amongst that, I'd always played sport competitively, rowing, swimming, water polo, rugby. And so I'd always had a passion for thinking about food as more than just food and how it could fuel me, how it could nourish me, how it could aid my performance. And later on in life, I started to really realize the power of food connected to work and productivity. And that's, I guess, been something more recent in years as my job's become an office job. So yes, I um, now have that combination of the food-driven background, but also the belief that the power of food can really change people's lives. Well,
0: to that point, how fundamental a reset is needed? You look at this country, we have a problem where, for example, it's School children during the summer holidays, millions of them, start to become essentially malnourished because they're not getting their school dinners provided. We have a massive and urgent problem. It's not just here in the UK, it's global. How much of a reset is required, I don't know, almost on a sort of government or federal level about the importance of, yeah, joining these dots and understanding that you can't expect people to function effectively, whether it's in work or in society more broadly, without really having a much deeper understanding of nutrition and food and how it really works?
1: I think that's a really hard problem for governments to solve, often because of the corporations that are entrenched both in government and in society. And that becomes really difficult, even at a kind of social level, for people to move away from things or recipes that they find as their favorites that they'd had growing up. And then, you know, they realize that those things aren't so healthy for them later in life. There's a lot of emotional connection with food, as well as like how corporations are financially entrenched. And so I think that's a really, really difficult problem to solve. But it probably starts more than anything with education around food. I give a present. Presentation last week on Friday where I asked a room full of people if they knew what macronutrients were. There was roughly 30 people in the room and one of them put their hand up. So if we aren't taught in schools about the building blocks of nutrition at even a very basic level, how can we expect people to prioritize where they spend their money? and also where they eat, what they eat, and how they start viewing food at both a kind of social, economic, and also at a nutrition level. And I think that people complain we're not taught about things like taxes in school, and I think that's certainly valid, but I think the very simple things, like the fact that there are four macronutrients that exist in the world, protein, carbs, fat, and then the fourth one being alcohol, and most people don't know what they are, the calorie makeup of those things, or where to source, how to cook, and how to eat in a certain way that is going to be beneficial for them. I think it's immediately apparent, Casper, how engaged and interested
0: you are, just with some of those big macro questions that even you, as an entrepreneur of some renown, can't solve on your your own. But talk to me a little bit about this idea of doing things with real meaning, purpose. Practically everyone we speak to now talks about purposefulness, but you've been demonstrative in pursuing that right from the start of your entrepreneurial career, Was that something that was, I don't know, a reaction to some of those tough times you mentioned, washing up in in restaurants, then working for some real tough taskmasters along the way? Was that something actually even, I don't know, when you were a kid that you wanted to feel you were doing something for a real reason? Tell me a bit about that. It runs through everything you've done. Where did that come from?
1: The fact of the matter is, is that when I wrapped up working for Gordon Ramsay at a sous-chef level, I was earning per day less than two main courses that I'd sent out that day. I was sort of on a 21K salary, working a 70-hour week with absolutely zero money in the bank. And so for me, moving into the business that I did, sure, it was super mission-led, which to me just meant that there was a real opportunity for product market fit, and there was a big problem to solve that could commercially make sense to us later on. But in all honesty, I had limited options. And I really had nothing to lose. If it went badly, there was no money I could lose, I had no access to debt. And so the reality was it was worth giving it a shot and seeing where it went. And so in the early days, fresh fitness food was cooked in our flat, which was a refurb Council State flat in Westbourne Park took two years to get out of the flat and then from there we began to scale the business again largely leveraging the fact that we had quite a cash efficient business and so mission driven absolutely that's become something that we start to focus on with more headroom and we start to look broader into the community as well but originally it was really just there's a massive problem there and we can solve it and that's going to create a massive commercial opportunity
0: well, let's talk a bit about the commercial opportunity. I'll come back to some of these wider mission things later, but give us some numbers. Give us an idea of the acceleration starting from what what is it now, seven, eight years ago to where we are mm-hmm. today. Extraordinary numbers, just in terms of like units, the stuff you get out of the door, sure. but also what you've chosen to invest in. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about some of the tech that powers the growth mm-hmm. as well, because that's, mm-hmm. that's interesting. But give us an idea of how you got from where you were then to where you are now.
1: So early days, you go back to 2015, we're leaving the flat and we're beginning to scale a business. That's kind of when our data starts. And now we're delivering about 150,000 meals a month out to consumers across the UK. We deliver nationwide. We operate two brands, Detox Kitchen and Fresh Fitness Food under that. And then we have two high street sites, which are Detox Kitchen sort of salad bars that anyone can access on Carnaby Street and Mortimer Street. But in all honesty, I mean, the scale has not been something like HelloFresh or mindful chef or any of those kind of brands that you might have read in the headlines and largely because we haven't raised the kind of capital that those brands have so to date fresh fitness foods raised about a million of capital in that time How have we managed to scale to the business we're at now? It's really through being a hyper cash efficient business and then being incredibly clever with, and that's, you know, I'm attributing that to my team, not me, as to where we put that capital and how we got a return on it. So the growth, yes, every single year we've grown, but we've really been, I guess, quite conservative about how we use capital, being quite a capital constrained business. And we've really focused on investing in product and tech because the scale will come later once we've got a great base.
0: And I guess, how do you, if you talk about then the team who've helped power that, responsible growth, well sort of proportioned growth, how do you go about sort of managing that? Are you one of those business leaders that finds it very easy once you've got the talent to back them, to delegate? Do you like to keep across everything? What's your sort of entrepreneurial style in terms of the day-to-day, Casper?
1: In terms of the day-to-day, I'd summarize it by I would never ask my team to do anything that I wouldn't do. I think that that kind of anecdote served me really well over the years. And I know that my staff, I've heard them repeat that. And so I know that they believe that. And that I think inspires quite a hardworking culture, often that's been driven early days from kitchens and then into, into my team sort of never looking at the clock, working till the job gets done and having my team see me do that. First in, last out has always been my style. And I think then everything just flows from that. Treating people with respect, treating them how I'd want to be treated, leading with empathy has become something that's become really important to me over the last few years. Our greatest stroke of luck has been the team that we've been able to bring on board and been able to keep. We've got people who are seven years with the business. Average tenor in our office is coming up to about five years. And that's people in their 20s, when in most businesses, the average tenor in the 20s is two years. And so we put that both down to mission-led business, but also creating an environment where people realise there's an opportunity for them to thrive and that aligns with the business.
0: It's not just luck. That's very modest of you to say, Casper. I'm not having that. It's a bit of skill in the mix as well. To what degree do you have to sort of sometimes come back to the idea that the food is at the heart of everything i mean i guess with your background and an enduring fascination with food and flavors mm-hmm. that is maybe easier how do you ensure that you retain what presumably you built up over those years working for the likes of Gordon Ramsay this curiosity about food and, and flavor do you sometimes have to almost like put the excel sheets to one side and go back out into the world as a food explorer or how do you sort of sate that particular enthusiasm does it take work to remind yourself to go and seek inspiration
1: I'm still a huge chef myself. I cook a lot at home. I love to cook for other people. So I'm very connected into food, I would say. I still spend quite a lot of time at either of our kitchen sites. So we've got one in Battersea, one in North Acton, on the ground working with the chefs. Last year, I was sort of spending every Monday from 7 till 11 a.m. physically working in the kitchen with the chefs. But really, like, the sentiment that I like to remind people through our team really can be broken down into this. I mean, people are going to join up to our service, and then they're going to leave. But the thing that will be consistent will be the fact that they will keep eating food. And we have to answer the question of why they're not eating our food. And I think that really comes down to, sure, we've got all the marketing in the world, all the fantastic PR in the world. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is somebody will eat their dinner and say, do I want to keep eating this next week? And then they will get a reminder about their subscription payment and they will make a decision and it will largely be driven off that meal. And if we keep remembering that and we stay focused on that, then it makes it relatively easy to keep the focus narrow on the product. Obviously, you've got the sort of
0: fresh fitness food as a sort of parent, I guess. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about the differences between the brands within the family, how how they work, complement each other. Does that ever cause any tension or does it sort of blur the lines ever in terms of the purpose of the different things, what they're trying to do? Or does it all sit together very elegantly?
1: Yeah, I would say it sits together very practically. So the Wellness Food Group's mission is to sort of change lives through food and obviously do that by making people healthier. And so originally the concept behind the group, which is still what it is today, is that we want to service more demographics via different brands. So detox kitchen services a primarily female audience, as well as a high street presence, as well as sort of plans that maybe you might only do for three days. And then you've got some longer term subscription plans embedded in that as well. Fresh Fitness Food is very much focused on a more male audience in some ways, but also is very much focused on a fitness market. People who are active in their life lifestyles whether that's just walking a lot running gym crossfit whatever it might be we supply something that really helps that as well as their careers through better productivity lower energy slumps and things like that so ultimately we'll look for more brands to join the group but each brand that joins the group has to service a different demographic
0: In terms of your sort of medium to longer term planning then, and you've talked actually really interestingly already, Casper, about trusting to that sort of more organic growth, not trying to kind of run before you can walk or whatever it might be. But, you know, if we look ahead, sort of projected revenue figures group-wide over the next two, three years are certainly ambitious. There's clearly scale and all of the data, as well as your testimony, speaks to the facility. I'm sure you and your colleagues will have to deliver that. But do you find when you look at those sorts of ambitions, what's happening kind of in your head when you look at that? Do you have find that it's a conflict between ambition and pragmatism? Are there external forces sometimes saying, well, you should be dot, 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 or why don't you think about X, Y, and Z? How does that work? What are the tensions that, that act on that? And does that, is that ever problematic for you?
1: I'll answer your question in reverse. In terms of the opportunities and people coming, I mean... Last week, somebody said we should do baby food. The week before, we should be focusing more on a plant-based diet. The week before that was looking at how can we get more protein shakes through what we're doing, right? When you're serving food and people love variety and you've got a huge variety of demographics that are gonna be eating food, there's countless opportunities. I would say the single most detrimental thing that I have done to our business in the last five years has been lack of focus by starting to explore those opportunities. The opportunity cost, of looking into those opportunities, spending time researching, saying, maybe we should do this, maybe even kickstarting some of them. You know, We even had a cafe at the bottom of the gym in East London at one stage. All of those things have been really detrimental to our growth of what a core product is that really solves a problem that we're really good at. So now, and for the last couple of years, we've been more and more narrow on what we're doing, which creates less and less conflict and also helps us prioritize where we spend our time. An entrepreneur's currency is their time and attention. And once you start to realize that, quantify it and then narrowly focus. Focus it, you start to get real return on that. As far as the next stage of your question, that conflict, I think that conflict largely for all businesses comes between revenue and profit you know, and they say revenue is vanity and profit is sanity. And so what we're looking for is sort of sustainable growth that keeps our brand profitable as we move forward. Mm. I think we'll look to raise a material series A sometime at the back end of this year. Right now, the markets aren't super hot for that. But as we head into the end of this year, I think that that will become a reality. And then probably three year timeline will be a 50 million turnover business. And we'll look to bring in some bigger partners to help us scale this into a more international business.
0: Casper, it's interesting you mentioned sustainability. This is something that obviously I often ask entrepreneurs on this programme about because we know about greenwashing or the idea that every CEO's year-ahead agenda now has sustainability at its core, but often it's a bit jam tomorrow. It's by 2050, we'll do X, Y, and Z. Sometimes sustainability can just be doing something better, investing more, buying less. With your business, because you were reflecting on what makes your business model sustainable, is that almost as important as sustainability... In terms of green credentials, building something that endures because then it unlocks all of this other potential to do things that have social impact, etc. When people talk about sustainability, do you put making a sustainable business even maybe ahead of sustainability in the sort of environmental sense?
1: I guess the question can be phrased, when do sustainability efforts start to conflict with sustainable businesses, right? And we've seen that actually in in a few, you know, we had a program called the Fresh Start program where we were hiring people directly from the prison system to come into our business and then retrain them. What we found is that the amount of resources it took to help redevelop that person, you know, mindset, skill set, work ethics, training, etc., often conflicted with the ability for the business to grow and then be able to help more people through losing weight or through our sustainable packaging efforts or even through our staff and their ability to earn more money because of the business's profits produce. So that kind of conflict became an issue and we've actually stopped the program in the last 12 months because of that. So I think that there are moments in time when it conflict but ultimately at a kind of macro level my view is that I believe capitalism shouldn't be a mushroom. It shouldn't go up and then out. Businesses should be inherently good and their practices should be inherently good so they shouldn't first focus on profit and then hope they then get to a place to either make up for their sins or look to help other areas of society through philanthropy and ultimately fresh fitness food is inherently good because what we do is help people become healthy and we do that in a relatively sustainable way as far as our packaging is concerned as far as the way we get our cooler bags back from customers and also as far as the way the business is run there's other things again that we do with things like prison systems or soup kitchens that are derivatives of our business but also innate to our business. So Soup Kitchens, we're able to have a certain percentage of our meals that we donate to that or to other charities around London. And as far as the prison system, I coach young men in Pentonville Prison on how to get a job. And then often we'll take those people and bring them into the labour workforce, not through the Fresh Start program, but just directly working within our team. And they work hard, they earn money. Our business does well because of it. It's not something we're doing on top of what we do as a business because we've become profitable. Why
0: did you get started with those initiatives, the prison rehab, trying to give opportunities to those who've been denied them for too long? Again, is it because you've obviously got a very tight read on the importance of this, you know, not an inequality of capital in the financial sense only, but the inequality of social capital, opportunity? Why do you have such a keen interest in that?
1: I think the simple answer that I hope drives home to people is because I can. And I think each of us, including you, have transferable skills that could support other people who are disadvantaged in our communities. And I think if you take an approach of if I can, I should, and thus there's a responsibility that I have a duty to do that, and I go about life in that fashion, not with all of my spare time, but with a portion of it that's allowable and that becomes reciprocal to my role, whether it's through the brand, the CSR, or the fact that my team appreciate the work we do and thus I get lower staff turnover, right? There are lots of reciprocal effects of it. But at the end of the day, it's because I can. How I think about that at a society's level is, again, I think that like if you go real macroeconomics for a moment, like the biggest concern we have as a society is aging population. Why? Because it's how many productive people we have in society. We have so many people on the sidelines of society and the opportunity cost of them not operating in the world that we're in is huge to us. We don't have to worry about aging population if we get people who, you know, if we reduce the crime rate, if we reduce the amount of people, 50% of people go back to prison. That's taking them out of the economy, making them not just non-productive, but net negative. We have a certain amount of people sleeping rough on the streets. You know, those are two areas that I can affect. But I think there are a lot of other areas that anyone can affect with their skill set that's transferable to help other people and get them back into the economy.
0: Casper, thank you very much indeed. That was Casper Rose. And you can learn more about Fresh Fitness Foods and the next generation of nutrition by heading to freshfitnessfoods.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Clara heim Steinover is the founder of Sips Berlin, the world's first on-demand natural wine delivery platform, providing sustainable and biodynamic wines from all across Europe. Sips launched their delivery service in Berlin with the vision to democratise natural wine, making the market more accessible. Customers can order an array of natural whites, rosé, orange skins, bubbles, reds and one-of-a-kind gourmet snacks with just a few clicks. Clara spoke to Monocle's Emily Wade about how sustainability is at the heart of natural wine production, about overcoming business challenges and about what's in store for 2023.
2: Our curation is at the core of the bottle shops. We really want to get people back in touch with provenance. Provenance is important to us as people don't really know where things came from or who made them. And we've lost a bit of touch with that. But through Sips, we wanted to share winemakers and highlight their stories, show images, show videos, and allow people to have a bit more touch with that.
3: And is it right that you started basically in the middle of the pandemic? Starting at
2: the beginning of the pandemic kind of gave us a little bit of a pandemic lens on the business. We definitely had delivery at the forefront of our business offering. And in the beginning, I think we assumed that people would care more about it getting there quicker than anything else. That was where our business model started, offering things on a level with some of those like Deliveroo. So we tried to offer an artisanal alternative for accessing natural wine and having it delivered to your door as a sort of lockdown-inspired project. It's really special wines from very special winemakers. And with all those nuances, I think people care less about having it instantly. People were booking slots days ahead, waiting for the wines. So that actually gave us a lot of hope that this kind of slow model of producing wine and slow agriculture was well-received and not everything needs to be quick and fast as we'd imagined. We've now become more of a same-day delivery platform than an instant-to-your-door service, which takes the pressure off logistically and also allows us to focus more on building out that curation element and the community element of our business.
3: And how would you say Sips make their
2: mark on sustainability? Sips has a core focus on sourcing natural wines, which is the largest part of our contribution to sustainability. Natural wine production is primarily very much better for the planet than conventional winemaking. The farming process isn't leaving the soil with less than what went in. So a lot of natural winemaking is done in the vineyard and great wines are made by great vines. So we have actually a lot of sustainability happening by promoting good soil health in the wines that we buy. From another aspect, Sips has chain of distribution in Berlin, which we use electric tuk-tuks to fulfill in order to get the wines to people's doors in the most eco-friendly and carbon neutral way that we can. So it doesn't end at buying nice, good, natural wine that's less harmful to the planet. For us, it goes all the way to the door of the consumer with using these electric vehicles, which save us a lot in our carbon footprint And also they're very cute to look at. They're nice vehicles that aren't widely available in Europe. So they're quite eye-catching. How would you say that you choose which
3: wine sips stock and import? Is that more of a sustainability decision? I mean, obviously there's so many aspects to that, but would you say that kind of determines it?
2: With natural wine, there's quite a lot of nuance in the product as when you don't use chemicals there tends to be more room for nuance in flavour and in different techniques that you might work with in order to produce that wine. Therefore, there becomes a really interesting fabric around the farm itself, the vines and the people who made it. In order for us to stand behind a product and promote it on our platform, we, we want to understand all of those details and communicate that with our customers. It's a really nice thing to be in full understanding of where something came from and why it tastes the way it does in a certain year and why it tastes different the following year based on the weather and the terroir. So Mm -hmm. those are all things that contribute towards our decisions of purchasing wines and working with winemakers and building relationships that we can stand behind as our platform should serve to connect the winemakers and their stories with drinkers and people who would like to be curious about flavour of natural wine. So those people who are new to natural wine, those people who know natural wine, we want to connect them with the winemakers and find an easy way of that information being accessible and an easy way of getting that wine to their doors. So that's why we need to select with such a careful eye on who we work with.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now that you're the sole founder of SITS, would you say you have a bit more flexibility with how things run kind of day to day? What hurdles do you face as well as kind of a fairly new business owner and when it's kind of all just all in your hands, basically?
2: As a new business, we definitely face a lot of hurdles in terms of resources and logistics of making things happen on a small scale. So, There's very much a need to establish processes that make things easier in terms of staffing and keeping the wheels turning. That's definitely one of the main challenges of being a small business is setting up those processes so everything can run smoothly and so that you can grow. For us, that was kind of year one challenges. I think now that that's relatively sorted, we face new challenges of how to integrate the other parts of our business in with the bottle shop and the delivery service. So as I mentioned, we've got the community aspect, which is based around content that we share with our customer base. And the content can be very time-consuming and costly to produce. In order to create rich content, you need to invest resources. And for us, a lot of that's been quite self-funded. So we initially took a bank loan and have had quite some early success with customers ordering from the bottle shop. And then we moved on to having bigger clients working with brands and delivering full-blown experiences to companies. So that could be from a wine-tasting masterclass all the way to a five-course dinner with a team of chefs in an old brewery or a church or a crematorium. When you have that many moving parts in an offering, which, of course, started with wine, And of course, wine is still a part of that. It's been a huge and instrumental part of our success and part of the reason why we can keep developing the bottle shop and the community aspect is because of this creative culinary agency that we are now building and have the chance to work with some really amazing brands. For us, it's come to us quite naturally where these big brands and partners are concerned and they've given us the budget in order to keep growing and developing the offering of the bottle shop and the community. And as a separate offering entirely, we're now developing the Creative Culinary Agency to operate in tandem with Sips Berlin, the bottle shop and community. But it will now have its own team of freelancers working on creating and delivering those experiences according to a brief. So. Mm. That's a very exciting development to share with you. Yeah, I was going to say kind of what are your plans for the
3: year ahead, but you've got a lot happening and you've got it quite packed out. What would you say was kind of another thing that you're looking forward to or something else that kind of Sips is jumping on board with?
2: I think it's how those elements all work together is our function now. When you have private customers who are consuming bottles of wine at home, how they relate to the other events that we're doing. So I think tying those elements together is a really interesting part of our next year and the challenge that we have upcoming is when we communicate about the sort of lifestyle events that we do, how those relate back to the bottle shop and to our private customers.
0: That was Clara Haim-Stojanova, the founder of the world's first on-demand natural wine delivery platform, Sips Berlin. And there's plenty happening for Clara and the brand, as we heard. Do keep an eye on SipsBerlin.com for updates. There's a new online store on its way soon. Well, that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out, in the meantime, for Eureka, coming your way every Friday. The program was produced by laura kramer with mixing and editing by jack jewers my thanks to them both as always and of course thanks once again to clara and sips berlin and to casper and all at the wellness food group listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform to contact the entrepreneurs team why not email laura find her at lrk at monocle.com and Yes, a final reminder, don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.